0: Good morning, Prairie College. Good morning, Mr. President, along with the entire Prairie team. Uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity to connect with you today. Uh, We all know that guests are supposed to start with certain pleasantries uh, and and affirmations of the host. Uh, But let me just say with with absolute sincerity, we at Briarcrest are grateful for you at Prairie College and uh, Canada needs what our schools do. I don't say that with 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 arrogance or inappropriate pride, but I do say that with conviction and with confidence. These, these are turbulent days. They're turbulent days politically, culturally, spiritually, uh, economically. And, and the continuing cloud of the pandemic continues to impact all of us. And we're going to see the tail of the pandemic with us for many years to come as we look at We're certainly processing loss, loss of lives, loss of jobs, um, supply chain interruptions, global economic instability, mental health issues, and reduced education for just so, so many in school. But I'm thankful you're here at Prairie College, and you're seeking to be equipped and resourced for a life of service, a life of impact, a life committed to fulfilling the purposes of God and the call of God on your life. Well done. Congratulations. I'm so glad you're you're here at Prairie College. And I need to say a few words about your present. I think the world of your present. I first met Mark, I believe, at a Missions Fest conference in Vancouver. least that's what my recollections are. And uh, we connect from time to time on the phone, or if we can in person, certainly welcome those opportunities. And let me just say, uh, your president uh, loves God, and he... He honors the word of God. He loves his people, staff, faculty, and certainly students. And, and he, he drives cool cars. And so uh, uh, all the best to you, to you, Mark, and your work there. And one more thing I just want to tell you by by with the introduction before the introduction. Abracris is a partnership of three schools. We, of course, have a high school academy. We have a college and a seminary. And our seminary is completely ATS accredited. And we have various MA degrees, biblical studies. We have an MDiv degree. We have a master's in counseling, a master's in marriage and family counseling, which is a completely uh, leads to complete certification. We also have a master's in, in leadership and management, and we have a certificate in the seminary as well for those who who haven't uh, achieved a bachelor's uh, degree education. And so a lot of options uh, to be explored and and our seminary is completely modular in nature. And so if you'd like to come for a week at a time. So so if you're considering seminary education and you're interested in learning more about our programs, please don't hesitate to uh, call on us and uh, we'd be happy to give you some uh, further information on our various programs. So this is Chapel. We want to get into the Word of God. And, and I'm really intrigued by your theme. I, I love the creativity of this theme of, of journeying with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. It's, it's creative. It's intriguing. And today I want us to imagine we're, we're walking on that road to Emmaus, and we're just listening to Jesus as he, as he takes us through the Torah. And and there in the scriptures, he's he's identifying himself and helping us to learn more about God as he's reading the scriptures. And and today we're going to look at the tabernacle. Now, I know some of you are wondering, tabernacle, tabernacle, uh, how, how is the next 25 minutes of my life talking about the tabernacle going to impact me? And some of you, full disclosure, I'm sure you're thinking this is going to be like a history class and you're going to be tempted to maybe catch a few Z's or or check your Instagram account. Listen, I want to encourage you to put your phones down, try to keep those eyelids open, and walk with me a little bit as we reflect upon uh, the nature of the tabernacle in the pages of Scripture. And full disclosure, we're going to look at a lot of passages of Scripture. But let me start with this, with this question. What is the tabernacle, and what did it represent? The tabern- tabernacle is talked a great deal uh, at length about in, in Exodus, Exodus chapters 35 to 40. It's first introduced to us in, in chapter 25, but, but the context here is, you'll recall, Israel has been delivered from bondage, from slavery in Egypt, and now they're being established as a new society, okay? And God gives them these 10 enduring commandments, along with all kinds of additional commandments, and he gives them these instructions that they would live in relationship with their shepherd, their king, their God. And he explains how to worship and he gives him principles for worship and practices for worship. And he explains expectations for religious leaders and the symbols and aids to worship. And one of the things he details out is the tabernacle. This was a sanctuary, a holy place. And in Exodus chapter 25, here's where we're introduced to the the tabernacle. He says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, that's the function. It's a holy place, that's what sanctuary means. Let them make a holy place whereby I may dwell, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so shall you make it. So two words used here, one is sanctuary, this is a holy place, and it was a tabernacle. And the word tabernacle literally means a place to abode, a place to abide, a place to dwell. So, so this is this is where this is where God was going to be with the people of Israel. And this was the significance of the tabernacle, It was a symbolic dwelling of God. So in chapter 35 of Exodus, we, we start to have the details fleshed out. In verse 10 of chapter 35, it says, let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent and its coverings, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases, and he and he teases out all the details, all the the necessary components to this tabernacle, and then he says this in verse twenty. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all its service. And for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were who had a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets and all sorts of gold objects. Every man dedicated offering of gold to the Lord. And so here all the resources came together. This was the offering. And then they began to build this tabernacle, this symbolic dwelling. Of God. Now, through the next several chapters, it flushes out all the details. But let me just give you some high-level, significant observations as to what the tabernacle meant. First of all, the tabernacle had a, had a practical function. It was the meeting place between God and men. It was often called the tent of meeting. It was portable in nature, so as they moved their way towards the promised land of Canaan, they were able to move it along with them, of course. And it was designed for all of Israel. Secondly, the tabernacle was beautiful and ornate. If we do some rough calculations, we see that some 1,900 pounds of gold were part of the building of the the tabernacle, some 6,400 pounds of silver, and another 4,500 pounds of brass were all part of the building of the tabernacle. Now, you think it's portable? It's not that portable, but but it was ornate. It was beautiful. It was magnificent. It was intended to to represent the dwelling of God. And as such, they wanted to reflect the magnificence of God, the, the wonder of God, the beauty of God's character. And so the tabernacle was beautiful and, or, and ornate. And we live in a time where we think much more leanly, much more in much more leaner fashion about architectural structure and architectural beauty. Not always, not everywhere, but, but I know we have some pretty beautiful uh, 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 grain elevators here in Saskatchewan. <clears throat> but here, they were, they were holding, no, holding nothing back. This was going to be a beautiful structure. The third thing we see in these chapters on the tabernacle was the tabernacle was designed by God as the dwelling place of God. God was their architect, not man. And once in Canaan, this tabernacle will be a more, more permanent worship place, but it was to be used as their place of worship. But unfortunately, it became somewhat of a rabbit's foot. They became rather superstitious about this, especially as... Israel called, moves in and out of fellowship with God. They, they drifted many times, of course, certainly during the time of the judges in particular. But when we come to the time of David, David sees this tabernacle and he determines that he wants to build something of a more permanent nature in which the Ark of the Covenant will be housed and, and the incense and, and, and the lampstands, and, and he wants to build something more, more permanent of course, God doesn't do so through David, but he does so through Solomon, David's son. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, we have Solomon, after having built the, the temple now, he acknowledges this in his dedication and prayer. He says in chapter 6 of 2 Chronicles, The Lord said that he would dwell in thick darkness, but I have built for you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. And so, whereas God initially dwelt in the tabernacle, now He would dwell in the temple, okay, symbolically. So, of course, now as we come to the New Testament, we find a shift taking place. We come to John chapter one, and in John chapter one, we read how in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we keep reading to to verse fourteen. It says, "And the Word, the Logos, was made flesh, and dwelt among us." That's the same word. The Greek Septuagint, the Old Testament, same word, okay? Jesus tabernacled among us. In fact, some translations even say that Jesus pitched his tent among us. So now we no longer were focused on on a structure as a symbol of God's presence, but now Jesus himself would come and dwell with us. This new understanding continues to unfold for us, uh, in this same book of the Bible, the same gospel, because in chapter four, we have this scandalous conversation which takes place between Jesus and a Samaritan woman. And there at this well, Jesus engages in a conversation with this woman, and he's challenging her to, to think about the illegitimate ways, the, the faulty ways, the, 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 the meaningless, insufficient ways that she pursued happiness and meaning. She did it primarily through relationships. And, and she has her cages rattled. She, she's, she's, she's been shaken up by this. And she says to Jesus in John chapter 4, verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So Mount Gerizim was a, was a deeply sacred mountain for the Samaritans. This was, of course, where Abraham encountered Melchizedek. And Jesus says that a crisis is coming. The temple is going to be destroyed and, and a new era will begin whereby worship will no longer be attached to a physical structure. It won't be so much temple focused. And the Father will be looking for worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. In spirit, because God is spirit and really can't be contained in physical structures. It was symbolic before, but now we'll have a greater understanding of that. In in, in spirit, with sincerity, with our own spirit, and in truth, with authenticity. And so true worshipers worship with sincerity and authenticity. We worship uh, the real thing and the true thing. And we worship God correctly, rightly, and with a right heart and jesus is is beginning to change our view of of worship worship of course is always a response to god response to the revelation of God and when we respond we re- respond in heart and and, and and Jesus is gradually diminishing all those externals of worship and driving home the importance of really the heart and when we talk about the heart don't think of emotion uh, the seat of your emotion think more particularly in terms of in terms of um, the core of who you are—your your mind, your emotion, your will, your 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 motivation, your aspirations—that's that's the core of who you are. So now, heart is going to be a much more significant component in our worship. Jesus continues to tease out this differing understanding of of God dwelling amongst us in other gospels. In Matthew, in Matthew eighteen, he talks about how where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst. Paul, of course, builds on this in Second Corinthians chapter six when he says. We are the temple of the living God, first in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. And, and we would learn that that we're we're no longer focused on, on physical structures as the as symbolic places of God's God to dwell, but rather God dwells in the midst of his people. Now what's the application of this? When we think about the tabernacle and Jesus walking in the roads. Uh, to Emmaus with his disciples and explain the purpose of the tabernacle. How does this have relevance for us today? Well, let me take you back to the beginning, to the Garden of Eden. It was that perfect place where humans, the climax of God's creation, the pinnacle of God's creation, where humans would now dwell freely and in harmony and at peace. With God, their creator. And of course, we messed up. We ruined the whole relationship. And while in the fall, there were all kinds of consequences that were set into motion. At the core, humans were now alienated from God. We were separated from God. We were estranged from God. We were disconnected. We we felt a sense of isolation and aloneness. And God says, I'm going to, to restore that relationship, and he gradually did, and he, he gradually unfolded. That's the nature of progressive revelation. He gradually unfolds more and more information truths about himself and his revelation, and one of the ways he assures us of his presence is through this object of a tabernacle, a symbolic representation of the dwelling of God with his people, and then he does so again through a temple. And then he does so through the presence of his son in the incarnation, Jesus, becoming flesh and walking amidst us. And then he does so through the representation of his people. We are the body of Christ, where Christ dwells within us. But there is coming a time when that presence, that dwelling will be, will be complete. It will will no longer be abstract and difficult to wrap our heads around. Before coming into this role, I was a pastor. I was a pastor for some 30 years. and Through those years, I, I performed a lot of funerals. And one of the passages that I would frequently read when I would perform a funeral was from Revelation 21. Listen to what these first five, six verses say. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Sea was often a symbol of judgment in the scriptures. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God. There's that word the tabernacle of God. God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated in the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. Write these down, for these words are trustworthy and true, he says to John there in the island of Patmos. God has always been with us, but he wants to communicate that he longs to dwell with us, as he did there in the garden. While we broke it, he sought to communicate that to us again through it through a tabernacle, through a tent, and then through a more permanent structure, through a temple, and then through his own presence, and then through through his community, through his people. But there's coming time when when that abstraction will no longer exist. We will, and I don't, I don't know what it'll look like, but we'll be there dwelling in the new heavens and the new earth, in the new Jerusalem. We'll be dwelling with our God and He will be with us. We'll know it. We won't question it, we won't doubt it, we won't be uncertain, we won't be perplexed, we won't feel those those motion emotions of, of isolation and aloneness. And in that truth, in that confidence, we find hope, we find encouragement, we find comfort, we find confidence. World Vision Canada has released some data, very current data, that was assessing young adults in Canada, ages 18 to 35. And in this survey data, I find it extremely sobering and, frankly, sad. Because it speaks of, largely your generation and how you're struggling to find the balance between hope and anxiety. and, And where loneliness is literally a crisis. This study tells us that three out of four young adults, 18 to 35, three-quarters, 75% of your generation feel lonely at some point every day. 38% feel acute loneliness such that it's almost unbearable. Now, I know you're all connected to this device and has great promise, great potential, great opportunity, a great resource, but it also sells deception. And some of you, some of you feel acutely lonely, even though you have all kinds of friends. The truth is, We all feel lonely sometimes, it's it's scary, our our chest tightens, everything looks darker, time seems to slow down at a horrendous rate, and and we quickly look for something to grab, something to fill the void, something to numb, that feeling of aloneness and isolation and, and disconnection and estrangement. And we need to be reminded that God is with us, that he dwells with us. Because listen, we all feel that aloneness. Don't think age makes it go away. Don't think that marriage makes it go away. Don't think that even a happy work environment with all kinds of relationships with your colleagues, there are times we all feel alone. So let me give you just a little slice of... Of my story, my testimony. I was raised in a very turbulent and unhappy home full of tension and anger. We were prosperous but very unhappy. My parents would eventually divorce when I was 12. And I would choose to live with my mother and we would move from a very small community in Ontario to Toronto. And it would be no exaggeration to say that I was in shock. Moving from a very small community to this, this city of millions. And I felt very much alone. But it was in this transition when my parents were splitting up that I trusted Christ, that I began following Jesus. I became a believer through a little Gideon New Testament that I'd been given in grade five. Some of you staff and faculty may recall receiving those as gifts in grade five. Reading that little New Testament, I put my faith in Jesus, and I was not raised in a Christian home. But I, I sort of figured, well, Christians do at least three things. They, they go to church, they pray, and they read the Bible. And so I find my, found myself at church. Uh, wasn't even an evangelical church, a Bible-believing church, but I started going to a church. And I started reading my Bible a lot. And I prayed a lot. And through my teen years, I, I had this bicycle, this, you know, 10-speed bicycle with the curdy the fry handlebars, and I would ride it for hours, and I'd ride the parks, and I'd, I'd, I'd lay down on the side of a hill, and I'd just look up, the clouds and, and the beautiful rays of sun beaming through those clouds and in between those openings in the clouds. And I'd reflect on God, and I'd pray, sometimes literally for hours. I was interested in art at the time. And I'd go to the school library and I'd take home various uh, classics and I'd study the masters, various Renaissance artists Dike. and Dyke. And, and those those beautiful religious pictures would would turn my attention towards God and I'd read. I just read the scriptures ferociously. And though I was alone, I never felt alone. And it was in those early days of my faith that God really introduced himself in such a real way, such that there are times I feel alone now, as do you. But I very quickly remind myself the words of Hebrews, where God says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And so today as we try to form a picture of Jesus walking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, talking about the tabernacle, I don't hear Jesus just talking about hundreds of pounds of gold or silver or bronze, but I hear him reminding his disciples that God wants to dwell with his people. And in that reality, in that truth, that we would find hope and comfort and peace. So today at Prairie College Chapel, God isn't just present as an abstraction. He dwells with you. He dwells with me. And in that dwelling, in that pitching of a tent, he finds such great joy. And so today, revel in that truth, in that reality. God bless.